The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two hirsute frontmen of hagiography. That's good. Your virtuosic guitarists of verification. Your rhythm section of perfectly competent rhythm sections. Oh. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm Jordan Rantalk. That was very good. That was a good one. Thank you. And Jordan, today we're talking about what is surely the second most important work of art called 1984 <laughs> in history. That's right. We're talking about George Orwell's 1984. Uh, no, we are talking about the Van Halen album of the same name, vastly superior uh, as far as I'm concerned. Sorry, nerds. Um, what of the human experience that cannot be encapsulated in jump do I need to concern myself with? Certainly more quotable. <laughs> That's right. We are talking about Van Halen's 1984, which turned 40 in January. How about that? Sh That's insane. That's 40. Still sounds brand new, baby. Uh, Jordan, I know neither of us are particularly into 80s metal, but I confess that I have a real soft spot for Van Halen. They had an amazing logo. You know, they had a cool <laughs> VF flying wing thing. They had Eddie. You know, I, I think it was in one of VH1's extravaganzas. I want to say greatest artist of hard rock. And I forget who it was, actually, who said this about Eddie Van Halen. But it's a soundbite I've always remembered. Where they said he is one of the only guitarists to invent a new vocabulary on the instrument. And what they were saying was that all your big dinosaur rock guitar gods, like Clapton, Page, and the rest. Poor Jeff Beck. <laughs> Oh, always a bridesmaid. And all of their wan, pale imitators like Joe Perry and and the rest. They were all just stealing the blues. 
Whereas Eddie Van Halen came in with this neoclassical sensibility. And I'm sure there's some boomer rock guitarist out there who's going to wag their finger and say, Ingve hey, Malmsteen did it first, or somebody else did some kind of neoclassical informed virtuosic shred first. But, you know, I, I think that for this style of guitar playing in the popular imagination, Eruption is like ground zero for, for this stuff, right? Like it was just like the new thing you had to aspire to, right? And that is so insanely rare in the art form, you know, in any art form, right? It's like Jackson Pollock or Rothko or somebody <laughs> like, how does somebody, somebody just comes along in a field that, I mean, the electric guitar was like, what, 50 years old at that point? Well, if you uh, want to go by rock and roll rules, yeah, 25. 20. Yeah. yeah. And just. Nope, wipes the slate clean and is just like, here is this new vocabulary, a new language that you have to come across. You know, even Brian May, who has like an incredibly distinct voice on his instrument, like you can hear a lot of blues in there and you can hear like English Music Hall. You know, what are you hearing in Eddie Van Halen's like in his solos and with the tapping and everything like Philip Glass? Like, I, you know, piano, it's piano because he yeah, was like was a piano kid. Prodigy. Yeah, raised but, on Mozart and Bach, right? But like, yeah, so like the fact that that, I don't know, it's insane. I could wax philosophical about Eddie Van Halen for a long time. And also David Lee Roth, one of the most hilarious human beings who ever existed. Just like the perfect combination of like Louis Prima style idiocy <laughs> and like, you know, um, Freddie Mercury power posing. Regal showmanship, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were others in this band, I'm also told. Um, oh wait, I'm just I'm getting something in my ear right now. There are two more. Yeah. No. Oh. Actually, Michael Anthony is a, he's a great bassist. And if you I mean people there are people who say that that Eddie Van Halen because let me tell you, I read a lot of weird forums when I was writing this. Um there are people who maintain that Eddie Van Halen played all the bass on Van Halen records after he set up his own studio because it was just faster for him. But there's some really impressive stuff on some of those early Van Halen bass lines, like everybody wants some. Um, even just keeping up with Eddie, like on stuff like Hot for Teacher, man, like that's fast. Um, and it sounds garbage enough recording wise to have not been recorded by Eddie. But apparently there's debate on that. Uh, I also listen to a lot of isolated parts <laughs> for this record. I've probably heard Hot for Teacher broken down to its constituent parts. Um more than almost anything else I've ever listened to. Like, Was well, this because you're trying to get David Lee Roth's vocal ticks down? or And the drum part. Oh, the drum part. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, we'll get into... Uh, <clears throat> let me see if I can... <clears throat> we'll see if I can... Uh, <laughs> see if I can bring that back later on. Um, no, but Van Halen always seemed to be in on the joke. You know, that's one thing that I really loved about them. And even Eddie, who I think, despite his kind of soft spokenness and occasionally acts of emotional terrorism and possibly physical terrorism as well, <laughs> just seemed to be so genial and <laughs> just like grinning through these insane feats of redefining the modern guitar. It's just like a, he's just like, this is fun for <laughs> me. <laughs> you know, this is going to make all of you insane for the next 50 years, but I'm just having a ball. And I had a guy who I played in a garage rock band with in central Pennsylvania who said, you know what? It's always a good day when you're listening to Van Halen. And oh. it's, very, it's just like, yeah, man, it's just cracking beers top down. It's sunny. We're in Pasadena for some reason. The weed is weak <laughs> and the nights are warm, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
a beautiful uh, sentiment. <laughs> That's up there with your college professor defending disco by saying everybody deserves to dance. I yeah. these these are beautiful. You have some really for, for for as dark as your psyche can be, you've got some really beautiful little gems that 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 you're, oh, that you're like tips through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what about? Wait, ha- hang on. I I found a soundboard here. I have a clip for that. I'll tell you all about it. Tell me all about it. <laughs> You know, I got to agree with you. The thing that I love about. That was a mistake. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it was it wasn't. You know, I, when we were talking earlier today, I said this and I mean it. I love Van Halen through your eyes. And you you described it in the perfect way. It's the same feeling that I get while watching the Beatles running through a field in a hard day's night. That's what I feel when I'm watching clips of Van Halen, for the most part, on stage. They just look like they're having a ball. And, that, and you want to be a part of it. You want to be any part of it. Ideally on stage with them, or if nothing else, you know, in the audience enjoying it. And so I, I, I do love that. But... I will say this is sort of the only thing that I like about Van Halen. Um, I sent you so much to listen to. Yeah, and I told you I did, didn't I? Deep cuts. <laughs> I listened to some of it when pressed. Um, I, I mean, I, you described it as the perfect blend of idiocy and virtuosity, and I think that's certainly true. I just... I. It's like Tommy Lee Jones to Jim Carrey. I just can't sanction their buffoonery. I just, you know, Lord knows I put up with Jimmy Buffett and God knows what else we've talked about over the course of this show that is pretty indefensible. But for one of the first times, I'm kind of taking the anti-approach for this episode. Van Halen's music made me hate the 80s. And oh, it's so much worse than the eighties. Well, I mean, well, yes, yeah, but the fact that this was like what seemed to come out ahead made me think, oh, this is just a wasteland of lunkhead guitar anthems. And I pretty well, much felt that until I heard like "Disintegration" by The Cure. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't really think you can begrudge them their bastard sons. You know, I think a lot of hair metal um, throughout the eighties really just took yeah. all of the like idiotic toxic masculinity that you get from you know david lee roth's whole deal and like the empty virtuosity parts of the guitar and just you know that curdled into the that i hate from the 80s the the, like sunset strip stuff but david lee roth's like musical tastes are hilarious to me because he has covered the beach boys he has covered the aforementioned louis prima you know they did happy trails on stage like he truly comes from a generation prior to the garbage that we associate with the 80s and the band was in place by like the late 1970s you know they're while we associate well this is certainly their biggest album and jump is like all of their biggest hits and stuff like they've been a band for a long time before this and so i really do think they get slotted more alongside some of your idiot 70s lunkhead stuff instead of your 80s idiot lunkhead stuff you know i mean they their first demos were produced by gene simmons Right, that's right. David Lee Roth, I mean, he has a showbiz background. I think his uncle was the guy who owned or at least managed the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village, which was where, you know, initially a, a coffee shop where Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Lenny Bruce and Pete Seeger and all those people played. And then uh, Jimi Hendrix a little later on, too. So, I mean, he, he definitely has ties to that almost like Catskills-esque. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like a Borscht Belt comic who yeah. became like a 
fucking heavy metal front man. It's hilarious. How is that not a pitch that you immediately grab? Right. No, you're right. You're right. It's fair. And he does backflips. Come on. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, he's he's exhausting, and so much of it collapsed into just like rancorous, shitty music industry greed, and that's just depressing. But we'll always have 1984. I'll always have Panama. <laughs> Uh, I will say the one song that I do sort of have a soft spot for is uh, Jump, as done by Mr. Paul Anka, who, by the way, is my new friend and colleague, producing his talk show Our Way with Paul Anka and Skip Bronson for iHeartMedia. And it premieres tomorrow, February 7th, or today when you're listening to this, wherever you get your favorite shows. Get that plug in there. Thank you. Nice. Um, okay, well, aside from the obvious plethora of hits that 1984 produced, Jump, Panama, Hot for Teacher, I'll Wait, it is an important album in the canon because it was the group's last in their imperial era before David Lee Roth quit or was fired. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you have a... Uh... I mean, Eddie was blackout drunk for like 20 years, and and David Lee Roth never let the truth get in the way of a good story, as the saying goes. So hard to actually, unless you're finding like, I'm sure there's like an 800 page Van Halen biography that I have not read where someone really drilled down into what actually happened, but uh, I have not read it. So, and I'm told that there were other guys too. There was a guy who sells tequila. There was a third guy. Um, other songs came out to my knowledge. Uh, so you're not a Sammy Hagar guy, I imagine. Yeah, nothing against Sammy Hagar, but my my opinion uh, of him can uh, be summed up in the scene from Airheads, the Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, Adam Sandler movie where they play uh, L.A. metal band or grunge band who takes over a radio station. And uh, it's it, who is it? It's uh, Egon from Ghostbusters. Harold Ramis? Yeah, it's Harold Ramis plays an, air, uh, an A&R guy who's trying to negotiate them at the door and they're they're quizzing him. And uh, Brendan Fraser goes, what side did you take in the big Van Halen, David Lee Roth split? And the guy goes, Sammy Hagar. And Joe Montana's <laughs> character in the back goes, he's a cop. <laughs> and, and, and then, uh, uh, you know, Ramis has the rejoinder. He goes, uh, strictly a judgment call. They had a lot of great hits. Uh, <laughs> they had a lot of great hits with, with Sammy Hagar. Um, anyway. So, from a guitar god's blasphemous transition to synths to what I believe may be the definitive list of automobiles connected to this album, <laughs> to the aborted David Lee Roth starring movie that scotched the band's ability to capitalize on 1984's success, here's everything you didn't know about Van Halen's 1984. I did. I did Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman, and then you play. You it's showed me up with of, that. Two different flavors of woohoo. The two genders. In 1983, Jordan, can you guess where Van Halen was? Maybe at a crossroads. They were at a crossroads. Their previous full length, 1981's Fair Warning, had stalled some of the momentum that they'd achieved with their previous three records: 1978's Van Halen One, 1979's Van Halen Two, and 1980's Women and Children First. This band released five albums, one a year, from 1978 to 1982. That is like Spotify, like will force you to record that much now. But they were just going in and banging them out like in two weeks' time. Um, but the pace took the proverbially heavy toll. 
Diver Down, 1984's immediate predecessor, was heavy on the instrumentals and cover songs, which led the group and fans to heavily disavow it as a proper release. In fact, the band had been wanting to take a break since Fair Warning, but they had released their cover of Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman, and it had become a hit. So they rushed out Diver Down as a stopgap solution. Now, Eddie Van Halen was dissatisfied by the concessions that he felt he'd make to Roth and the band's longtime producer, Ted Templeman, over their cover song choices, which obviously leaned towards the first era of like pop rock and the golden age of Hollywood, question mark. <laughs> um, and B, Eddie's growing affinity for synths and keyboards and electric sounds, electronic sounds. Um, despite the group's commercial success with covers like The Kinks, You Really Got Me and Pretty Woman, Eddie would later say, I would rather bomb with my own music than be the world's biggest cover band. Hmm. I want to do a quick spotlight on the background of the Van Halen brothers because they've had a really interesting early life. They were born in the Netherlands to a Dutch father and an Indonesian mother before moving to the United States as children. And their early years were not easy. To put it mildly, the family lived in one room together after arriving in Pasadena and they'd scour dumpsters for scrap metal to sell as a family. Jesus. They couldn't speak English when they moved to the United States, and this fostered a very strong sense of us versus outsiders among two brothers. It's so Dutch, like the least <laughs> serious. But it's very metal language, though. No, it's not. No, it's not. Am I? Am I getting it? My wires getting crossed with like Scandinavian? Yeah, the Nordic ones have some metal to them, but Dutch is not a serious language. Mm, okay. Apologies to the Dutch. Yeah, I was gonna say all our Dutch fans out there, tweet at us. <laughs> Using Einstein Fliegenbegen. <laughs> you heard Dutch spoken? I mean, this to is, me, that you were doing the Swedish Chef right there. I, yeah, I don't I, think I wrapped into it. But just, just, just you know, just listen. I mean, the only Dutch that I can really conjure up is Goldmember in Austin Powers. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good stuff. Hallo allemaal, welkom bij het Ecolinguist kanaal. <laughs> Ecolinguist. Ik ben Kim en ik kom uit Nederland. Imagine being a dispossessed young child in the hard streets of Pasadena, scouring for scrap metal to put food on your plate and having to talk like that. <laughs> welcome in Bienvenue, welcome. <laughs> Oh, it's fine because they're white and they have I know. racial stuff like Schwartz <laughs> and Pete. We can totally make fun of them. It's a victimless crime. And you know what? Eddie and Alex's dad, Jan, I believe is how you say it. He was a Dutch resistance fighter who was captured by the Nazis and forced to tour Germany playing in a band. So yeah, that's it, cool. it, it all fits. Cool. Yeah, that's cool for him. Though. Their musical heritage is steeped in... Combat Perform being forced to, to perform for Nazis <laughs> under presumably penalty of death. So uh, that says that says an awful lot. Yeah. So Jan, once he moved to the United States, he was a jazz musician and he started his sons, Alex and Eddie Van Halen on piano at a very young age with the intent of molding them into concert pianists. I played a long time, Eddie told Guitar Player Magazine. Got all my musical theory and stuff from playing piano. We used to have this old Russian teacher that was a super concert pianist. He couldn't speak a word of English. He would just sit there with a ruler ready to slap my face if I made a mistake. <laughs> uh, Eddie, yeah, yeah, seriously. Do you ever have any uh, professors or teachers like that? Like whiplash I, style? 
Um, no, I had a guy who would uh, flick me with his bow <laughs> if I like look for an like, upright bass, like none. Yeah, like an upright bass bow, like none wrapping the knuckles style, but nothing truly abusive. I talked about that boss who uh, who thought I, I had management potential, but thought I was too soft. So he had me sit next to him on his side of the desk as he called people in to fire them just to show me what it was like and toughen me up. Did I tell you about that. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully for Eddie, he got good enough at piano to win a few competitions across Los Angeles as a pianist, but he was soon bitten by the rock and roll bug and abandoned piano in favor of guitar. Like so many musicians of a certain era, like Paul McCartney initially played the trumpet. Did you know that? Ah. Yeah, he would. An instrument where you'd have to be as loud and obnoxious as possible. (laughs) He put it down because he was like, wait, I can't sing with this in my mouth. Which is an astute observation. That's why. That's why. <laughs> no one. No one else had thought of that. Uh, so yes, Eddie mostly, at least for the next decade or so, abandoned piano in favor of guitar. He did, however, attempt to introduce the keyboard into Van Halen's sound, starting with "Women and Children First, running a Wurlitzer electric piano through a phaser pedal and a Marshall stack for the track "And the Cradle Will Rock." The instrument was so disguised that you could be forgiven for assuming it was an electric guitar, which until this moment, I always thought that's what it was. But, you know, they weren't really in a hurry to disabuse anybody of this notion because the electric guitar was part of the band's image that David Lee Roth and not Ted, Ted Templeton. Temp- oh, it was Ted Templeton. Fuck, I'm getting my Templeman. Oh, man. Temperton co-wrote. Rod, Rod, Temple- Temp- Rod Temperton co-wrote Thriller. <laughs> Uh, Ted Templeman is Van Halen's longtime producer, and Templeton is an animated rat. Is the rat okay? From uh, from from uh, Paul Lynn. Hambo. <laughs> Charlotte's Web. That's your second. That's your second impression out of me tonight. Ah, you're you're gonna overtake me in the stats. Uh-uh, yeah. Well, no, you, I trust me. You're gonna you're gonna hit that David Lee Roth button enough times tonight for <laughs> for all of us. So yes, Wait, guitar. Oh, have some. Yes, I am. <laughs> Oh, yes. (laughs) So guitar was very important to to the mythology and the image of Van Halen. And they didn't have a rhythm for a long time. I think that's where Dimebag got it for Pantera. They were just like, we don't, it's a, it's a four piece, you know? Wow. That's interesting. But yeah, I, I just to go back to Eddie and Alex's dad, Jan Van Halen for a moment. He's just a really interesting guy. In addition to being a, uh, you know, Nazi resistance leader in, in Holland during World War II. He was a professional musician. He also played clarinet and saxophone. And he actually plays the clarinet part on the Diver Down track, Big Bad Bill. Big Bad Bill is Sweet William now? Yeah. And I didn't realize this. Eddie and Alex played in a band with their dad. They played like weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff. And it was during this period that uh, the boys bonded with their dad through drinking. According to the band's one-time manager, Noel E. Monk, this was not a case of a dad sharing a beer with his grown boys. Uh, To quote Mr. Monk, I'm talking about a guy getting faced with his teenage boys in the hope that the camaraderie of drinking would encourage honesty and transparency in the relationship. Men. (laughs) The Dutch. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. Are they harder drinkers than their compatriots in that part of the world? 
I mean, you're 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 going head to head with the Germans, yeah. the Austrian, yeah. Uh, they can't be. They've yeah, permanent. permanent the Brits, the Irish, permanent last France? place nation. Sorry, guys. Well, you got Amsterdam. Oh uh, well, yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to contrast this for a moment with Diamond Dave, David Lee Roth's background. I found the simple life, one so simple, no. That's too cute for David Roth's life story. (laughs) David's father was a wealthy eye surgeon who bankrolled his hyperactive son's ambition to be a rock star, including a top-of-the-line PA, which made him very popular with the local bands when he was growing up. I believe that was also why how how Ozzy got into Black Sabbath and Bill Weren't Wyman they, got into Rolling Stones. Into the Rolling Stones, right? He had a like, oh he maybe had an it's maybe it's Wyman I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. And how the original Beatles drummer Pete Best got into the Beatles too. He just had a drum kit. Yeah, Ozzy Ozzy was responding to a, uh, or the band was responding to a 1969 flyer. It said, Aussie Zig needs gig, has own PA. <laughs> Amazing. Apparently, David Lee Roth wasn't a good singer when he first started out. Like, yeah, aggressively I bad. He's yeah, not a, he's not a, he's not super melodic. He just kind of shouts and hollers around and gets by on personality. But, you know, by the time these records are being cut, like, he's really honed in on what that limited instrument can yeah. do. You know, like, his isolated vocal tracks are just not only hilarious, as we've ascertained, but, like, he's got a hell of a way with phrasing, and even though everything's kind of in that sort of basic pentatonic blues shouting stuff, like, he makes it work, man. Diamond Dave. Well, okay, we've got David Lee Ross' limited instrument. Let's talk about Eddie Van Halen's extremely expansive instrument. Yeah, he was a, perhaps because of a lifetime spent, or a childhood spent toiling in the scrapyards, Eddie was an inveterate uh, tinkerer. Wow, I never thought of that. Oh, I wonder if that's <laughs> he, true. Yeah, I mean, much like um, Brian May, he like cobbled together his first guitar out of scraps and... and uh, is that the Frankenstrat? No, that's not the Frankenstrat. He's that had like lighter. seven Frankenstrats as far but I think the first one that he made, like the original, uh, was like a cobbled together thing. And that's the one that people have been chasing the 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 like tone of for decades because of supposedly how he wound the pickups or how he wired it or like the exact mythical production year of the tubes that his Marshall amp had. Like it's really insane. But Eddie also, as he got money, started to invest in cooler and weirder new keys. Fair Warnings, Hear About It Later, was written on piano. He used an uh, electroharmonic synth on uh, the track Sunday Afternoon in the Park, which whips. It sounds like John Carpenter. Um, Pull that up for you. I think I sent this to you, and you did not listen to it, apparently. I No, I did. I did listen to this one. (laughs) I No. No, I I, did. I did, Heigl. I did. I really did. It's so great. It's like, yeah, when you delve into these weird B-sides, you're just like, what the f*** were you guys on? And the answer is cocaine and Schlitz and vodka. That's so good. It belongs in like an Italian zombie movie. Um, One of the final straws, though, was 
uh, he wrote a riff on the Mini Moog synthesizer, and that was interpolated or somehow became uh, Diver Downs, Dancing in the Streets, which is uh, uh, not one of their better covers. And uh, he was extremely upset about that. He said, Ted and Dave were happy, and I wasn't. Uh, so in late 1983, Eddie had begun a two-front defense of his love of keys and his need to assert creative control in the band, which manifested in 5150, a home studio he built with engineer Don Landy. The name is famously taken from the California police code for an involuntary hold on a mentally disturbed person. Subtle. We know, we know a lot about that from working at page six of People. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, famously exercised on Britney and uh, Amanda, Amanda Bynes, Bynes, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so away from the naysayings of Roth and Templeman, uh, Eddie could craft synth-based songs from the ground up. And while that was basically all he was able to do because uh, no one would know this except for weirdos, but building a studio sucks. <laughs> and so, especially back then when you were installing a tape machine and uh wiring all the patch bays in through those old ass consoles so 1984 actually took the longest of any of the band's uh records to track um three months as compared to varying time frames of five days i think for their debut uh and two weeks and all of those were done at sunset sound i'm pretty sure with uh with templeman so, uh, on the album, Eddie mostly played an Oberheim OBXA synthesizer. He also had an OB8 uh, synth nerds. Go nuts. Googling that. Uh, the, the title track on 1984 is called from 43 minutes of Eddie just noodling around with his engineer, Don Landy, uh, recording him and then just cut it together. And... Uh, yeah, doing that as a lead-in to jump could be seen as a, like a power move, a kind of assertion, like, hey, we're doing synths on this one. You said that the engineer was recording him secretly all those 43 minutes? Why was he, <laughs> why was he being recorded secretly? I mean, I guess, he, I guess he was just dicking around and, and the tape was running would be oh, my, okay. my bet. Um, but my God, that is a lot of synth noodling. That's what they used to do with the Beatles, too, is that they would, the people who ran Abbey Road would tell the engineers and tape operators, like, yeah, don't listen when they call, you know, call out for takes and stuff. Just leave the tape running the whole time because it's the Beatles and there could be gold on there. Probably knew that someday there'd be the anthology collection. I was going to say, and boy, did they milk that one dry. Uh, the main synth riff to jump was actually written as early as 1981 and rejected by the other members of the band. According to a Rolling Stone interview, Eddie said the reaction was, we don't need that shit. Somewhat hilariously, Daryl Hall has claimed that Eddie Van Halen told him personally that the synth part from, uh, jump was copied from the piano part of Kiss on My List, charitably adding, I don't have a problem with that. That's really funny. I I um I was assigned to write uh they call them pre bits, a premature obituary for uh Daryl Hall. So I was working on that earlier today. Is he on his way out? No, but they just, you know, you never know. Um and uh I forgot that kind of completing the circle here, uh Michael Jackson approached him and apologized for uh Jack and the riff from uh No Can Do, I Can't Go for That for uh Billy Jean. So it's Daryl <laughs> Daryl Hall claiming that two massive songs were jacked from him. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, uh, supposedly Daryl Hall was also tapped for the lead vocalist position in Van Halen after DLR, Diamond Dave, exited. Did, did um, Who said that? Did Daryl Hall say that? or <laughs> I... I Nah, I can't remember. But yes, almost certainly. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, like that rumor that uh, Michael Bolton was uh, considered to take over for, I think, Ozzy in Black Sabbath? Oh, there's a rumor, and then he debunked that years later. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that stuff is not actually as far off as a lot of people think it might be. I mean, we have that the Metallica doc where they just like, when they were trying to find a bass player, they just cycled through everybody in LA who could play bass. So it's kind of not that far afield to think that they were just like waving checks in front of anybody that they thought had a good voice or whatever but michael bolton is funny uh david in that same rolling stone feature uh eddie says that he still has the original tape of that demo on which you can hear his then wife valerie bertinelli yelling shut up (laughs) uh oh and the van halen brothers wanted to call their band rat salad with an E on the end of it, which is a, <laughs> a reference to a Black Sabbath song. And it was uh, Diamond Dave who convinced them that their name sounded classier. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
David Lee Roth uh, really didn't like keyboards in general, but especially the part on uh, on Jump. Uh, he apparently wailed, you're a guitar hero. Nobody wants to see you playing keyboards. And in his 1998 autobiography, Crazy from the Heat, he characterized Van Halen's music in this period as, quote, morose. <laughs> but, but Eddie dug in his heels saying, if I want to play tuba or Bavarian cheese whistle, I'll do it. I, I, <laughs> Is that is that's, that a Bavarian cheese whistle? No, that's maybe my favorite part of the isolated vocal track from Running with the Devil. That David Lee Roth brought a slide whistle into the vocal booth with him so that he could play it in between his vocal interjections. Do you think that he was just calling uh, Eddie Van Halen's bluff and was like, "All right, well, maybe I'm yeah, gonna yeah. play." Um, there's a number of incredible pool quotes from that Rolling Stone feature that I would like to surface at this time. David Lee Roth. Upon being asked if he could assess a Bruce Springsteen show as, quote, the most awesome thing he's ever seen. Honey, I can go to White Castle and look in the bag and say, this is the most awesome thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Pete Townsend on Eddie Van Halen. That incredible virtuosity combined with that beautiful grin allows me to forgive him for letting David Lee Roth stand in front of him. <laughs> Eddie, on rejecting the usual trappings of being a teenage boy in California to study the guitar. I just basically locked myself in a room for four or five years and said to myself, hey, this guitar is never going to f*** me in the ass. What I put into it, it gives me back. How literally do you think we were talking here? <laughs> is he just very concerned about... Maybe. Bassist Michael Anthony, uh, on the first time he ever saw David Lee Roth perform, I just went... Jesus Christ, get this guy away from me. <laughs> David Lee Roth responded to the adage that money can't buy happiness. Maybe not, but I could buy a boat big enough to sail up right next to it. <laughs> Alex Van Halen at a backstage party. I wish I had more than one dick. David Lee Roth's poignant summation of the life of a touring musician. After cloud dancing for two hours, what then? You get lonely. The world is not made of New York City's or Los Angeles's and Dallas's. It's made of tuna fish Wyoming and Lone Ranger Oklahoma. I always make the joke, yeah, you're lonely. You're lonely in your Learjet. But it does happen. You feel like you're chasing the ice cream truck through the rain. Whoa, okay. I was about to make fun of all that until that kicker. Wow. Real gut punch, yeah, from Diamond Dave, baby. What's cloud dancing? I think he just means being on stage. <laughs> uh, it was actually avowed synth enemy producer Ted Templeman who convinced David Lee Roth to give the whole synth thing a shot. Roth supposedly was then driven around in the backseat of his 1951 Mercury custom convertible by roadie Larry Holster as he repeatedly listened to the instrumental track. Inspired by news footage of a suicidal man standing on the ledge of a building, Roth reasoned that someone in the crowd must have thought at one point, go ahead and jump. <laughs> a thought that really could have only occurred to David Lee Roth, <laughs> the son of a wealthy doctor who really had a lot of impatience and just really a lot of trouble controlling his id. Yeah. 
so go ahead and jump that that thought that intrusive thought apparently morphed into being a a koan for taking a chance on someone with lines allegedly cribbed from strippers that Roth overheard. <laughs> how? I mean, oh, not how. I understand how he would have been around strippers. But yeah, I. Uh, Okay. All the right. lyrics don't scan with a ton of depth to that song. Yeah, I no, will, you're right, I will you're say. Right. Uh, David Lee Roth recorded the vocals to jump in a single afternoon, and then the song was off to the proverbial races. And David Lee Roth was probably off to the literal races. He strikes me as a guy who uh, gambler who goes and visits the horses every now and then. My favorite, one of my other favorite bits of them around this time is that he traveled with um, two little people uh, as as part of his personal entourage who wore security T-shirts uh, just for the visual gag. Uh, when it came time to make a video for Jump. The band didn't go anywhere near as high concept as the video they did for Hot for Teacher, which we'll talk about later. Uh, rather, David Lee Roth wanted to focus on his karate kicks and flips, which, as you note here in the script, are quite impressive. And they are. But all that footage didn't end up being used until it came time to make the video for Panama. So Panama. instead, for Jump. Uh, 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 I hate that song. Uh, uh, I hate that song so much. Song rules. <laughs> so instead the band shot a candid performance video on handheld 16 millimeter cameras at the complex small theater in hollywood santa monica boulevard director pete angelus said in i want my mtv the uncensored history of the music video revolution rather than doing something bigger than life which is how van halen was perceived we wanted something very personal let's see if we can get edward to smile of course <laughs> that's all it took of course, we also had to appease Dave, who wanted to throw his karate kicks into the equation. I think we spent less money making jump than we did on having pizzas delivered to the set of Hot for Teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a cute video, though. Yeah, it is. Jump, of course, went on to be the band's lone number one hit, where it stayed for five weeks, and has since become an immortal staple at bars, cover band nights, and sporting events, including soccer clubs in France and Italy, and the NHL's Winnipeg Jets. So, truly an international anthem for all of us. Although, it did lose the Grammy that year to Prince's Purple Rain, which is fair. Uh, the album's next track, Panama, also became one of the band's defining hits. Roth has said, and like any good classic rock quote machine, anything, any quote of his should be taken with a salt shaker, uh, that a journalist at one point grilled him about why he only wrote lyrics about partying, sex, and cars. And Diamond Dave subsequently realized he hadn't yet written a song about a car, so he set out to write that wrong. <laughs> he leaves the interview. He, he rips his headphones off, leaves the radio studio, whoever's doing the interview. Would not surprise me at all. Um... True to form, the lyrics are basically just a series of double entendres about cars and women. And the name of the song, though, confusingly, is, of course, not a reference to the country or the palindrome, a man, a plan, Panama, a canal. I think I did that wrong. I think Hang it's on. just a man, a plan, Panama. No, it's a man, a plan, canal. A man, a plan. Um, Two things can be true at the same time, Heigl. Yeah, I'm not going to pursue this. If you or a loved one know how that palindrome goes, please get in touch with us. <laughs> Tweeted us at a man, a plan. <laughs> We've got Canal, Panama. Um, 
It is about one of two memorable cars in Roth's life. A drag racer he once saw named Panama Express, or a 1969 Opel Cadet station wagon that was once mounted on a wall of his home, featuring a prop deer smashing through a windshield. Uh, this was part of an art installation properly titled My First Deer. Despite this confusion, there is a documented car associated with the song. For Panama, Eddie drove his 1972 Lamborghini Miura S around Los Angeles to find just the right RPM, for the record, it was 80,000, that the car sounded best at, and then he just backed it up to their home studio and placed microphones at its exhaust pipes to capture the sound heard on the bridge of the song. He did tell uh, Guitar World in 2014 that when the guys once asked me to write something with an ACDC beat, that ended up being Panama. It doesn't really sound that much like ACDC. But that was my interpretation of it. Was this the era? What were we talking about? It was Thriller when they were like trying dozens of different doors to get the door squeak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, this era. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to just make you listen to this because because I got you here. And this payback for Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> that whammy bar <laughs> amazing you know it's like i said really about good. jimmy page it is virtuosity hammered <laughs> it's like there's just there's just so much in there that is just like an, a guy with just complete mastery of this instrument uh just winging it because <laughs> he can it's like i could be better but i don't feel like it yeah i had 17 schlitzes today um Oh, yeah, the brown sound. How much do you want me to actually go into this? I mean, all I can think of is that South Park episode with the brown note that. The brown note, yeah. no. Um, you know, there's actually, like, there is actual theory behind the idea of the brown note, um, which is that certain frequencies, like low enough frequencies, can um, affect uh, your bowels. Yeah, but just the body. I mean, there's there's a UK protopunk band called Throbbing Gristle uh, who had a bunch of um, like old army gear that were like signal generators and just weird kind of frequency generators that they um, ran through amps and, and just like to create this wall of sound and it would make people throw up at gigs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, um, I mean, there's like beta waves or beta frequencies or something that people listen to to fall asleep and then there's um, solfeggio frequencies. I think you can find on like YouTube too that supposedly... Um, I, I don't remember exactly what they do. Either relax you or, um, make you poop. <laughs> it's one and the same for me. I don't know about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the brown sound is, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, we think of the, like, of sort of that, that again, the, his bastard sons in <laughs> hair metal of like having this really like sharp, you know, cranked tone and everything, but like those guitar tracks are almost muddy. <laughs> you know, they are so dark, and and part of it is because he was um, using a, a a transformer that basically uh, start. He would crank his amp, uh, but run it at lower power. So it's this idea of really saturated uh, tubes that weren't ultimately loud enough to have them distort in a particular way, as I understand it. And then, you know, just these different things that he'd done to his guitar. Supposedly the, um, again, his Marshall was like a, a real um, one of a kind one. People, people get into this idea of um, 
certain tubes and certain eras that were used in these hundred watt marshals of, of being really, um, you know, have the mojo certain things. Yeah. His 19th on the first Van Halen record, his sound was a 59 Fender Strat. Um, and then he just started gutting like Charvel, uh, Stratocaster copies. Uh, and then he rewired, um, a DiMarzio pickup and, he also dipped his pickups in paraffin to reduce feedback noise. So they put on um, um, on pans for like nonstick, like almost pre Teflon. I don't know about that, but um, yeah, I mean it's what you would use to like seal. Like I'm pretty sure in it, the little paper boat that they make that floats down the gutter and gets the one kid killed is made with paraffin wax. But yeah, I mean. That was not an approved method of wiring guitar pickups, you know, it really did just f*** up some of them, but, you know, when you coat a magnetic coil in wax, it is going to produce a less fi fidelic, <laughs> high-fidelity sound. What was I trying to say there? Clear. Yeah, that Ironically, one. the word you're searching for is clear. <laughs> that's, my, that's my exit music. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I'm struggling this episode. Yeah, and some of the other things that he did was, uh, you know, when he died, there was people vamp, were surfacing. Vamp. The, <laughs> yeah, right. When he died, people were surfacing the patents that he held. He held a bunch of, of, of U.S. patent trademarks for different, like, guitar gear things. One of them was this, like, it looks like a, like a, a, a girdle. <laughs> it's like a plexiglass thing that mounts to your waist and locks your guitar uh, perpendicular to your body without a strap so that he could tap on it two-handed but like the patent image that, that is drawn is like of like a coloring book like stick figure drawing line drawing of Eddie Van Halen <laughs> tapping on the guitar with all of the different parts labeled it's really amazing I'm sorry I'm looking this up right now oh you found the, you found the picture <laughs> I mean you're right it looks like a it looks like a connect the dots like coloring book thing <laughs> wow Okay, yeah, that's that's definitely worth seeking out, folks. Oh my <laughs> god! So the Panama video, the video for my least favorite song, as we mentioned earlier, reused footage that had originally been shot for the Jump video, but the live stuff was taken from the second of the band's two night at the Philadelphia Spectrum in March 1984. It also features Roth's aforementioned 1951 Mercury 8 convertible, which sold for, as you write, an astonishingly low $30,000 at a Sotheby's auction in 2013. Yeah, I, I, that's a, that somebody, I almost feel like the Sammy Hagar fans must have mobilized there or something. That's <laughs> I mean, like, when you think about these custom jobs, man, more than that went into it, yeah. assuredly, you know? We used to be a proper country. Yeah, this car was a custom job by the legendary car customizer George Barris, whose CV includes the Munster Coach, and Dragula for the Monsters TV show, the 1966 Batmobile for the Batman TV series. Uh, he created cars for the Beverly Hillbillies, Mannix, Knight Rider, and the show My Mother the Car, which is that weird show about the cop's elderly mother who dies and gets reincarnated as a car, if I believe. I think it was that is cop. correct. Yeah. Uh, he also made custom golf carts for Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Anne Margaret, Glenn Campbell, and Elton John. Wow, customized golf cart. And adding to this just absolutely 
bonkers resume. George Barris also helped contribute designs to NASA for their Mars rovers, basing them on the suspension and tires he created for the Moonscape vehicle, which had been a popular plastic model in the 60s. That's weird that he didn't design the uh, the lunar rover. Yeah, I, I, my only, from what I gleaned from that, it was that, that he was designing a model of for like a plastic toy model, and then they, as they were doing research, they it must have come up in like, you know, lunar module design, and they were like, hey, that suspension looks actually quite practical. Can you send us that? And he did. <laughs> Uh, possibly the funniest thing about the Panama video is that it started a battle with MTV, who had a staunch stance against product placement. They were very unhappy about Michael Anthony's bass guitar, which was shaped like a bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> uh, hilariously, he also had one that was shaped like a bottle of Tabasco sauce. Hi, which I would, I would rock. Yeah, it, one hundred. I was gonna say if you could, if you could have a bass that was shaped like a condiment, what would it be? Oh, probably sriracha. I was, I was gonna say as, that. As basic as it is, um, Tabasco is a close second. Very versatile sauce. Um, Worcestershire sauce. You have to say that because you're New England. Yeah. Yeah. And an Anglophile. Yeah. I would, you would, I would imagine HP or something for you. <laughs> That's so funny. I was just with my brother and my brother's partner the other day, and they'd never had HP sauce. It was on the menu, and I was describing HP sauce. And I was supposed to go uh, to trivia with them tonight, and I'm taping this instead. So when they listen, Hi, guys. I told you I wasn't lying. (laughs) (laughs) But getting back to the story, MTV obviously couldn't turn down a video from one of the biggest rock bands in the world at the time. So they allowed the goofy bass to stay. And this might have been early enough. When did MTV launch? 81? August of 81. Never mind. I was going to say early on in the MTV's run. They couldn't afford to turn down videos. Nobody had videos. And they were just that's why all those weird. I mean, it's probably one of the crucial factors of the rise of the new wave movement in the early eighties was that all these weird arty British bands were the only bands that had videos in yeah. the ready repurposed from like top of the pops and stuff. Right. Like a lot of that live yeah. footage, uh, gotta be honest. I'm not particularly well versed in I'll wait, which is the third single off 1984. It's a, another synth heavy song, almost completely based around the instrument. Uh, Michael Anthony even plays his baseline on the synthesizer. The most interesting thing about this song is that, like everything else in the 1980s, it couldn't escape Michael McDonald. <laughs> the soft-spoken beard-falsetto combo had had a pre-existing relationship with Van Halen producer Ted Templeman, not to be confused with Thriller co-writer Rod Temperton, <laughs> or The Rat, Templeton. <laughs> Ted Templeman, once again, not to be confused with <laughs> Rod Temperton, who co-wrote Thriller, or... Templeton the Rat from Charlotte's Web had worked with the Doobie Brothers during McDonald's tenure with the band and produced McDonald's first solo album, 1982, if that's what it takes. Roth was struggling to come up with a vocal melody and lyrics for Al Wade, and Templeman called McDonald in as a singer. McDonald told Ultimate Classic Rock, Ted Templeman called me up and said, hey, these guys have a track and they need some lyrics. You gotta, you gotta say, you gotta tell a story like Michael McDonald. Hey, these guys have a track and they need some lyrics. So I mentioned you could do it and they said, fine, why don't you come on down? He sent me the track and I got some ideas going so I'd have something when I got to the studio. McDonald, however, recalled that the experience, quote, wasn't exciting. Wasn't exciting. <laughs> I met David Lee Roth at Ted's office. That was uh, an interesting experience. 
He kind of liked what I had going, so we sat there in the office with the demo playing on a cassette recorder, singing lines and melodies. We've actually obtained uh, footage from that, and, and I'd like to play it for you. Oh, that's good, Eddie. <laughs> Damn it, baby, no, I ain't lying to you. I'm only going to tell you one time. Great stuff, David, but maybe we take that one back for notes. I told you my, uh, I told you my, uh, Michael McDonald story, right? Oh, when he was cool to you? Yeah, yeah, he was really cool to me. Yeah, he, um, it was when he rejoined the Doobie Brothers and, like, the head Doobie was grumpy that day. And, um, Jeff Skunk Baxter? Tom. I think it was Tom. Oh. Yeah. Fine. He was in a pissy mood. And he was just like willfully misunderstanding my questions and getting really snippy with me and trying to make me look like an idiot. And then finally, uh, Michael McDonald came in and defended me and was like, come on, Tom, don't be an ass. You know what he meant. And then he came over to me and, uh, and, and spent a little extra time with me afterwards and clearly in an attempt to make, make sure I wasn't feeling bad. So yeah, Michael McDonald, Class he, he, his, he doesn't just have the voice of an angel. He is an angel. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? <laughs> just checking that my bandmate. Wasn't rude to you. Well, even you want a soda? You want some ice cream? I got the Doobie Brothers company call. Have you seen that great SCTV bit with Rick Moranis when he's Michael McDonald well, driving, driving around, around town yeah. in every <laughs> single background session? Yeah, it's so good. Friend of the pod, Ryan showed me that. Thank you, Ryan. Well, even after that magical afternoon with Michael McDonald and David Lee Roth, Roth and Templeman didn't want to include the song whose name escapes me. I'll wait. That's what it is. Didn't, yes. Didn't yes. want to include I'll wait on the album. And Eddie and engineer Don Landy had to battle them over it. Even though the song reached number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100, Michael McDonald's credit on the song has dipped in and out of official releases by the band. Michael McDonald told Ultimate Classic Rock, I guess they thought I was Santa Claus because I had to go chasing them a little bit on that one. Kind of does look like Santa Claus, to be honest. I was going to say it's funnier because he does look like Santa. Santa. It's probably one of the most played things I've ever written, just because it's Van Halen. That album sold three or four million copies right away, which was a really big deal at the time. There are so many great Van Halen songs. How many are there? I actually don't have one of him reading a, a a number, but for me and you as well and the listeners out there, Hot for Teacher perfectly distills the band's blend of virtuosity, horniness, and goofiness. Jordan, what do you think about Hot for Teacher? Do you hate that one too? I do. Is that the one that's oh, like, right. I don't feel tardy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the song's opening bass drum cacophony is actually four bass drums. And while I'm sure in the intervening years, some annoying wunderkind has figured out how to play it. Alex Van Halen's actual like live part uh, doesn't kick in until he starts the regular beat. Eddie's parts, including his solo, made the song actually harder, as he explained to Guitar World. Um, the song's tempo also jumps up. Like It's really wild how they were just doing this live, and Eddie was just like gesturing to everyone to follow him. Uh, of that guitar solo, he said, I winged that one. If you listen to it, the timing changes in the middle of nowhere. We were in a room playing together, and I just kind of winked at the guys and said, okay, we're changing now, because I don't count. I just follow my feelings. I tend to do a lot of things in threes and fives instead of fours. 
Uh, the live room at 5150, the studio where they're doing this, wasn't particularly large. And so a lot of the drum sound on the record is actually a Simmons electronic drum kit. Not acoustic drums. Wild to me. Probably the reason, some of the reason that you hate it. Uh, in particular, the intro to Hot for Teacher gave rise to the rumor that the, the percussion sounds at the top of this track are a car rent, or a, uh, a motorcycle revving its engine. Um, and that is not true. So someone, people have theorized that that was like an engine, like a Harley engine or something trying to start. Um, but it's overdubbed electronic bass drums. Naturally, when producer Ted Templeman asked about the singer's vision for the track, David Lee Roth told him, in this one, we're all pretending to be in the classroom. Genius. <laughs> stunning. <laughs> stunning genius directorial vision. This is according to Ian Christie's 2007 book, Everybody Wants Some, The Van Halen Saga. <laughs> Uh, so to fulfill this creative vision of David Lee Roth, they dragged a bunch of random crap into Eddie's 5150 studio to recreate the raucous atmospheric parts you hear in the song. You're like throwing bottles around and stuff. I love it. <laughs> Just hooting and hollering. Uh, weirdly, considering it's such an all-time lunkhead anthem, you say, <laughs> the song only peaked at number 56 on the Billboard charts. But the video is another story. The band shot the classroom segment in my beloved John Marshall High School in L.A., making its fourth or possibly fifth appearance on the podcast. Was that the high school in both Grease and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time video? That is correct. And there's definitely something else. You're right. So many others. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Over 80 people auditioned to be in the Hot for Teacher video, and two separate women ended up playing teachers. There were just so many. They just, you know what? Give them to make part for everybody. Yeah, there's no know, there's no rule that says work. yeah, there's, there's no rule that says you can't be hot for two teachers. <laughs> the two women are Donna Rupert, which to be fair is if I had a Ms. Rupert, I don't know the name. The name kind of well, I don't mean to get too. I don't mean to get too uh, cartoon wolf eyes here, but have you seen Donna Rupert? I mean, I'm yeah, I assume. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I, 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 I must have at one point. I don't trust you anymore. Well, she was the 1981 Miss Canada pageant runner-up, so I assume... Uh, Very much so. I, 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 I assume. <laughs> and then there was also Lillian Mueller, a Norwegian model, who plays the physical education teacher. Uh, I'm going to read this directly from the script you wrote because I can't improve upon it in any way. Devoted music video horn dogs may also recognize Mueller from Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy video. So there's that. <laughs> One of the child actors hired to play the roles of Little Van Halen in the clip, Yano Anea, who had appeared in A Christmas Story and some commercials, recalled to louder sound, the shoot took four days. I got there on the first day at 9.30 in the morning, and I told my mom, I need to go meet the band. That is my priority. Smart kid. So I found their trailer and knocked on the door. Alex Van Halen answered, and he looked at me and went, what's up, kid? And I went, I'm part of the cast. I'm playing Michael Anthony Jr. I just wanted to see if I could hang out with you guys. And he went, come on in. And was like, hey, man, why don't you go to the back and grab us a couple of beers? So I walked back there, and Dave Lee Roth was there. He looked at me and went, who the f*** are you? Why is there a kid in that trailer? <laughs> And Alex was like, don't worry about it, man. He's part of the cast. He's hanging out with us. They had an ice chest in the back with nothing but Coke and Schlitz malt liquor beer. So I grabbed two of them and went up to the front and Alex challenged me to a shotgun. I'm like, 
I'm 13 years old. It's 1020 <laughs> in the morning and I'm drinking a Schlitz beer with Alex Van Halen. This is awesome. Yeah, right. It continued for him. The thing that stuck with me the most was the part where the teacher was dancing on the table and all the kids were looking at her legs. The director was shouting, grab her legs. I looked at my mom. <laughs> Should I actually do that? Is that okay? And my mom was like, do your job, son. <laughs> That's a truly professional stage mother. Uh, later, Eddie showed him how to play the intro to Running with the Devil, making it all in all a pretty good four days, I'd have to say. The voice of the nerd in the clip was actually your beloved Phil Hartman. Oh my who, God. as we have noted previously, notched music industry experience as a graphic designer uh, for the likes of Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, Poco, and America. Do you know he dropped out of college where he was studying um, graphic design and illustration to roadie for a rock band? Yeah, that's actually really weird. I was watching a uh, Vice has this uh, web series. It's called something like The Tragic Side of Comedy or something. And I was watching one on, they've got, I think they have two seasons now. I was watching one on Chris Farley. I was watching one on Phil Hartman. He had a whole life. Like he was in his, he was, I think he was 40 or something when uh, he got cast on SNL. He had a whole life before that. Really interesting guy. And then, of course, there's the Pee Wee Herman stuff too. He co created the Pee Wee Herman character. Right. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. 
Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So one of my favorite uh, nerdy YouTube channels is this guy, Ken Tamplin. And he does this, as many people do, like voice teacher reacts to uh, isolated vocal tracks or whatever on YouTube. And I've read a lot about David Lee Roth's particular like overtone whistle is like whistle scream right. um which is like almost throat singing right because it's not just the fundamental note that he's singing but it's like um that whistle tone is not actually what people call the whistle register it's literally like a thing that unhealthy vocal cords do <laughs> so let's let's go to let's check the tape where uh where ken explains this there's that infamous scream. Listen. It's like vocal feedback. Now that is caused when the chords lose good separation. Vocal chords. Okay, and they can't get that separation. All of a sudden, it does a whistle, kind of whistle regular, register, where it breaks up in the harmonic structure of what should have been a complete, hey! It breaks up into several notes, three notes. Now, I can do that after I've sung way too much and hurt my voice in my falsetto register, or in my chest register and my falsetto register, and uh, get that sound, but it is not a healthy sound. It sounds cool, but it's not a healthy sound. Wow! Okay. And he punches it back in. Right, what episode were we were we, we doing? Oh my god! Okay, anyway, so that's that. Sorry, what? <laughs> well, it's you know, it's really insane with it, and this is what having knowing that he is able to do that is the precision with which he can fire that off at like the tail end of a regular oh! vocal phrase. God damn it, baby! No, I ain't lying to you. I'm only gonna tell you one time. Because it's crazy. He goes on this whole like vocal ad lib, right? I ain't gonna do it to you one more time. And then in the same breath, fires off that scream thing. Like that's nuts. Even if you say he doesn't have a, a good, technically good voice or whatever, I defy anyone to try and replicate that. What is he saying? Is he, damn it, lady, I'm only gonna damn tell it, baby, you. I oh, ain't, I'm probably gonna tell you one more time. I ain't fooling with you. Where is the it ain't, I ain't fooling Okay, play that now. Where is the I ain't fooling with you? I can't hear it. Damn it, baby. No, I ain't lying to you. Oh. I'm only going to tell you one time. It's, uh, it's I ain't lying to you. My mistake. Okay. Um, TMI regrets the error. TMI regrets the error. <laughs> My favorite one, though, is the one I sent you earlier, which I don't think you listened to. I did. Yes, yeah, so which one? Damn oh, it, lady. One. Oh, no, yeah, I ain't yeah. lying to you. I'm only going to tell you one time. That's from Everybody Wants Some. Uh, let me pull that up on Twitter. God, I just made Jordan's life. This is payback for Titanic. I know. Big trouble oh, I have to edit this for tomorrow but. morning. <laughs> that one was me. We should do a blindfold test. <laughs> if you can tell. <laughs> the TMI blindfold test. Is Wait. it Alex or Diamond Dave? Wait, I'm going to. Okay, I'm going to shut my eyes. I'm really going to try now. No. <laughs> oh. Oh. Okay. I, I, the quality is the quality is yeah. is despicable. Uh. Yeah. One fifty four in the song. Everybody wants some. Uh. I believe this whole vocal was ad libbed. <clears throat> oh! 
Not that part. I'm actually talking about. I'm actually talking about a separate part. Siamese water torture for you, man. This is what the FBI uh they, they play you like one second. They play you like one second of an immaculate Beach Boys harmony. And then they pull it back and it's just David Lee Roth isolated vocal takes. And I'm grinning at you through the one-way mirror. <laughs> do you want a new do you want to do another one about the Beatles, Jordan? <laughs> do you? <laughs> that one was me. Anyway. Talk to us about the hot for teacher uh, sort of details. Oh, wait, before we go, we were talking on one episode. And I'm trying to remember who it was. It was Kate Bush or what about somebody who has really. Oh, unique that's Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury. People, people yeah, analyze, yeah. yeah, a bunch of acoustic scientists analyzed his like the waveforms of his voice and determined that he kind of I think he was able to do it. But with a subharmonic, mm. uh, just like the way that his singing technique evolved naturally that he was producing actually two distinct tones um but yeah i mean it's the same i i in theory it's the same principle when you're talking about the way that ken tamplin from ken tamplin's vocal academy was talking about dividing the actual harmonic structure of a note into its fundamental and one of its over or under or subtones like it's still the same principle it's crazy dude it's just so cool what the voice can do uh and then you wreck it and you can't do that anymore <laughs> like like robert plant man world's greatest voice for like a very short amount of time ah fools they were all fools they didn't take their voice seriously says the man who's talking himself hoarse going <laughs> i was reading about julie andrews the other day and about her whole like botched oh, vocal yeah. surgery that shit's a nightmare, dude. Yeah. Imagine you're a surgeon and they're like, yeah, we made it way worse. Yeah, you're going to sing like Randy Newman from now on. I'll, uh, I'll take my check now. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking doctor. <laughs> uh, Jordan, tell us about, uh, tell us more about Hoffer Teacher. Oh, you never ask. Well, <laughs> one of the most hilarious parts of the video, as far as I'm concerned, at least, is when the rest of the band struggles to keep up with a routine choreographed by Vincent Patterson, who also worked extensively with Madonna and Michael Jackson. The guys dubbed their costumes Dave and the Pips. as a Gladys Knight reference. The car in the music video was built by Tom McMullen, the owner of Street Rotter magazine in 1982. And he used a fiberglass Ford Phaeton, Phaeton-style body what is a phaeton? Uh, it's like a old coupe, dragster coupe kind of thing. Uh, they were made in the 30s. Hmm. And then they got real popular with the California like Rat Rods guy. Oh, okay. Nicknamed Tom's Tub 2, it was on loan for the video. And reportedly, Tom McMullen was not happy about the scene where it peels out at the end. The car lived at the Peterson Automotive Museum in LA, which is very cool, until it was sold for what? I consider a paltry $23,000 by the museum in August 2023. So recently. So that's not some inflation. That was on on Bring a Trailer. That was on like the car auction site my dad watches. Like just these these custom things going by for like what 
a podcast costs. Wow. But then my contract uh, negotiations. <laughs> I want I want an automotive as iconic or less than Grubs <laughs> Tub 2. No, no less iconic then. We can we can go higher. Oh, okay, okay. No, yeah, that's my that's my yeah. see, this is why you're telling me how to negotiate. I don't know yeah. this stuff. <laughs> Well, speaking of auctions, both guitars in the Hot for Teacher music video, the little one played by Eddie's Mini-Me and his actual guitar, both went up for auction in recent years. The one that the kid played, his name was Brian Hitchcock, appeared to have been given to him by the people making the music video because it was autographed by Eddie and signed, thanks, Brian. Thanks spelled with an X. Because it's cooler. It makes me sad that he sold it, but, you know, he got 50,000 grand. (laughs) 50,000 grand. Jesus. My least favorite candy bar. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Play me off. (laughs) Is 50,000... Wait a minute. Is 50,000 grand technically 5 million? Maybe. Yeah. 50,000 times a thousand. I don't know anything about money. Like, I pissed a lot of it away. I've got a couple synths, got a couple guitars. Do not ask me to do math live on this show. There's a zero in there. I probably. Wait, so it sold for $50,000 in December 2020, so recently. And it was also accompanied by the kid's costume from the video the white t shirt that says no bozos, and a pair of Sergio Valente jeans, and an Ola Cassini denim vest. The, the hmm. costume alone should be $50,000. This is an iconic music video, one of the biggest music videos of the 80s, which is the decade when the music video was the biggest it's ever going to be. I can't Thank believe you. that. Thank you. Someone had to say it, and I did. You're right to say it. Huh. Meanwhile, Eddie Van Halen's guitar on the clip, a custom job by Paul Unkert of Kramer Guitars, sold for, okay, this is the sounds more right, $3.9 million when it was auctioned by Sotheby's in April 2023. Unkert was believed to have completed the guitar in 1982 and delivered it to Van Halen the following January, at which point it became Eddie's main instrument during 1983 and 1984. The unnamed buyer at the auction also received the white gloves and straight jacket that Eddie wore for the video. He's in a straight jacket at Hot for Teacher? Yeah, they do like a Fast Times at Richmond High. Oh, yeah. And I think Alex Van Halen became a gynecologist. Eddie was hospitalized. Michael became a sumo wrestler. And and, and, uh, Diamond Dave is a talk show host. Terrifying glimpse into the future for (laughs) three out of four. (laughs) <laughs> alex tell us about your favorite story uh eddie oh, yeah, and man. Guitars. i mean this is just so cute uh you know as we mentioned earlier dimebag daryl was a big of pantera was a big uh, eddie fan and uh they got to be friends over the years and when um dimebag daryl was shot and killed on stage in uh 2004 uh eddie showed up at his funeral and told uh dimebag's partner an original deserves an original and he put his black and yellow striped guitar into Dime's casket, which was a kiss casket. Oh. And, then, and then proceeded to give one of the most drunken and rambling speeches with Zach Wilde. <laughs> it's really a thing of joy. Well, that's really touching. But Heigl, how did Hoffa Teacher cast this longest shadow? I'm so glad you asked. 
A hunt for teacher may have cast its longest shadow in the halls of the American legislature. While most people know Tipper Gore's Parents Music Resource Center movement was sparked in 1984 by listening to Prince's Darling Nikki, Gore apparently backed up her horror of that uh, musical experience by watching a couple hours of MTV, during which she came across videos that included Hot for Teacher and Motley Crue's Looks That Kill. The images frightened my children, she said, or was quoted as saying, they frightened me. The graphic sex and the violence were too much for us to handle. This led to the curious morning in September of 1985 when Florida Senator Paula Hawkins treated her fellow taxpayer-funded servants of the American people to showings of Hot for Teacher and We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister. One criticism of the rock industry is the way it portrays values in rock videos which are viewed by the kids, Hawkins introduced the clips by saying. I am not sure how many of my colleagues get much opportunity to watch any of the music video shows now available on cable and free TV. I brought along two videos from which to choose, which I believe are representative of the kind of presentations which cause the problem. The first is by the group Van Halen. So that is all enshrined somewhere in the Congressional Archives. Uh, one thing that may have gone unnoticed, however, in the congressional parsing of Hot for Teacher, uh, was revealed many years later by the video's director, Pete Angelis, in Greg Prado's 2011 book, the aforementioned When MTV Ruled the World, the early years of the music video. One thing I remember about that video that a lot of people don't know or maybe didn't see is when Dave turns into the television show host at the end. We had an idea. I thought, you know, there hasn't been a really substantial urine stain on MTV. Ever. When you really think about it. So let's pour a lot of water on Dave's crotch. Let's make it look like he really just pissed himself. And then let's see if anyone sees it when we hand the video into the record company, MTV. And nobody did. I know this sounds absolutely pathetic to say, but we probably pulled off the first and most substantial urine stain in the history of television. So we've got that going for us. <laughs> oh, sorry, though. One other thing I found. In 2013, a 57-year-old Florida man sued Michigan's Oakland University for suspending him after he turned in an essay inspired by Hot for Teacher that graphically described his professor. Are you kidding me? Joseph Corlett wrote in cursive in the composition entry submitted with the lawsuit. I should drop right now, the class. There is no way I'll concentrate in class, especially with that sexy little mole on her upper lip beckoning with every accented word. And that smile. Corlett said he wrote the essay after his professor for English 380, Advanced Critical Writing, Paula Mitzfeld, assured him that no topics were restricted in the free writing assignment and that she wanted, quote, the raw stuff according to the lawsuit. In an ABC News piece describing Corlett's, Corlett's loss in court, one another excerpt from the essay described Mitzelfeld as tall, blonde, stacked, skirt, heels, fingernails, smart, articulate, smile. Key Reist, rendered phonetically as K-E-E hyphen R-I-S-T, I'll never learn a thing, Corlett's prose continued. I'll search for something unattractive about her. No luck yet. A judge ruled that this work was not covered under his First Amendment rights. <laughs> Thoughts on that, Jordan? I I can't remember where I saw this, but recently there was some other college professor who um, had a student. It was a creative writing class and wrote a student that was a barely disguised. A story about a student who was very clearly him seducing a teacher who was very clearly her in a barely disguised way. Um Makes me sad. Ah, yes! (laughs) (laughs) 
I have a horrible feeling that these are going to bleed into every other episode. <laughs> I mean, I have found the soundboard now. <laughs> it's going to be a different soundboard forever. It's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you know, it's not a Tuma and all that. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, who's got other good ad libs? I bet a Stevie Wonder soundboard would be pretty good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you He's look for that, and I'll read this section. Okay. 1984's framed artwork, the album cover of a cherub, technically termed a putto in art history circles, which, as you write, sounds like a slur, and it does. Uh, a cherub smoking a putto smoking a cigarette was art directed by Richard Serini and music video director Pete Angelus and painted by graphic artist Margot Naha whose other credits include Seals and Croft's Unborn Child, which she did while she was still in college, Stevie Wonder, hey, Stevie Wonder's Secret Life of Plants cover, as well as covers for Toto and Rick James. Incidentally, the label and the band had asked Nahas to paint an image of four chrome women dancing, but she turned them down. Some sources have said that this was because painting four chrome women was really hard and kind of a pain in the ass. But Naha's husband persisted in showing her portfolio, and the band came across this cherub painting and asked for that instead. The model for that painting was her friend's son, Carter Helm. Nahas recalled to CBS in 2020 that, quote, I took a picture of him and took candy cigarettes, which he proceeded to eat, every single one, after a brief tantrum, of course. She also styled his hair. The front cover was censored in the UK at the time of the album's release with a sticker that blocked out the cigarettes in the cherub's hand. <laughs> Gotta love the UK. You don't. No, I sure don't. 1984 peaked at number two on the Billboard 200, ironically being kept from the top spot by Michael Jackson's Thriller, which features Eddie Van Halen soloing on Beat It. It remained in that spot for five consecutive weeks and was certified diamond sales in excess of 10 million copies by the RIAA 1999. Jump also garnered the band their first Grammy nomination, which, as we mentioned, they lost to Prince, and they wouldn't actually win a statue until 1992. One of the most amazing things to come out of the release cycle for 1984, though, was the band's promotional contest with MTV, dubbed the Lost Weekend with Van Halen. Fans mailed over one million postcards to MTV in hopes of winning after the channel aired a promo with David Lee Roth. Promising. You won't know where you are, you won't know what's going to happen, and when you come back, you're not going to have any memory of it. <laughs> the contest was won by 20-year-old Kurt Jeffries, a department store loading dock employee from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, who submitted eight postcards. He was flown to Detroit to join the band along with a buddy named Tom Winnick. But prior to deciding on Tom, he was deluged with offers from people vying for the second slot, with temptations ranging from the sexual to the financial, allegedly up to the tune of $5,000. Flown out to Detroit by the band, the pair drank heavily and hung out backstage with the guys before being uh, before <laughs> Kurt was dressed in a Lost Weekend shirt and brought on stage, where a sheet cake was smashed into his face and he was doused with champagne. <laughs> Apparently, the night then ended for him at 4 a.m., when MTV staff dragged him back to his hotel and dumped him in his bathtub. On the second night, Kurt Powell's Tom was found, quote, locked in a small closet wearing a bra, and the evening's proposed limo ride with David Lee Roth was derailed when the backstage party devolved into a food fight. As Kurt told a fan magazine, it was the best time of my life. <laughs> but sadly... It was not the best time for Van Halen. <laughs> 1984 marked the beginning of the end for Van Halen. David Lee Roth was pursuing a movie career 
had put together an EP called Crazy from the Heat, which indulged in his love of pop covers and featured both Carl Wilson and Christopher Cross backing him on his version of California Girls. Oh, he died uh, 26 years ago today. Carl, my favorite Beach Boys. Surely never achieve, never achieving the same highs as singing backup for David <laughs> Roth. <laughs> David Lee Roth, around this time, wrote a movie, also titled Crazy from the Heat, loosely based on his own life, and pitched it to CBS Films, according to a 1986 <laughs> article by Metal Edge. CBS gave Roth something like $10 million to write, produce, and co-direct the movie with the aforementioned music video director Pete Angelis. While Roth had supposedly hoped that Van Halen would contribute to the soundtrack, I also read in that article that Niall Rogers of Chic was tapped for the soundtrack, which is a collaboration I would die to listen to. Um, in his 1997 autobiography, also titled Crazy from the Heat, Roth explains that he had a signed production contract with CBS. Storyboards were completed, costumes were finished, before the whole thing fell through and CBS pulled the plug to save money during its efforts to save itself from a hostile takeover by Ted Turner. Roth promptly turned around and sued them for $25 million, which he lost, although he did end up getting his $3.5 million director's fee back. The full script for the film was leaked online in 2018, if that's your bag, baby. Anyway, Roth and Eddie's creative dueling visions ultimately culminated with Roth's exit from the band. He was replaced by a sunburned and genial tequila salesman by the name of Sammy Hagar. <laughs> Hilariously, during the recording of songs for the film Twister escalating tensions between Hagar and the Van Halen brothers boiled over, and Sammy Hagar subsequently departed the band on Father's Day 1996. I would like to say something. The Twister soundtrack is what brought Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks back together. It's true, folks. It's funny because it's true. There was then a third singer, I'm told. <laughs> it's guy from Extreme. Yeah, Gary Sharon. I knew his name. I, oh. just wanted to, I just wanted to short shrift him. Did Extreme do? Extreme did more than words, right? Yeah. More than words. That song sucks. Um, all of these creative struggles culminated in the logical endpoint of Eddie replacing the only other person who was left in the band at that point with another of his blood relatives. He installed his 14-year-old son, Wolfgang, on bass, uh, foisting Michael Anthony from the position he had occupied for decades. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before. I think... I think Eddie Van Halen to like a certain extent. And I know he got clean and became like a really lovely, genuine, like sweet person. You can see that in a lot of the post clips when he has his teeth and weight back and by all accounts really was a very lovely man. But he was also a horrific alcoholic for many years and made a lot of really cutthroat decisions. I think like the first time that he renegotiated for royalties with their record label to put out like a best of. He like renegotiated David Lee Roth's royalty rate to some like percentage mark much lower than the rest of the band and then did the exact same thing to Michael Anthony when Michael Anthony was like, when he was going to replace him, he was like, yeah, I'm going to like buy you out of your stake in this band and cut down your royalty rate and then like, that's it. <laughs> and subsequently hired his 14-year-old son to play bass. Um, yeah, Eddie struggled a lot with alcohol addiction and made some moves that seemed, um, dickish in <laughs> retrospect, but, you know, he did eventually get clean, patched up his relationship with his family, uh, not anyone else in the band though. And of course he passed away in October of 2020, which is a sad end to one of America's most fascinating musical voices. I did not write an outro for this 
Jordan, do you have any thoughts? Have I ruined this band for you further? No. Follow-up question. No, Was you, that possible? You know, I mean, one of the things that I like about doing this show is that when I go into one of these episodes not liking the topic, I usually come away with an appreciation for it. And I think I did here. What about the Dutch? Mm. Still mixed on them. We do an episode on, uh, what's a Dutch thing? Van Gogh? Yeah, we could do an episode on Starry Night. Actually, <laughs> that would kind of be a kind of an awesome episode. I actually thought about pitching Twister again, because learning that Twister sabotaged the second iteration of Van Halen adding to the Fleetwood Mac thing is like one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Like what a cursed cursed artifact. Okay. Well, if I failed to impress on you the importance or significance of Van Halen on an artistic sense, um, all I can say is we got a couple episodes left on my contract, buddy. (laughs) And there's yet time. Oh, there is time. So much. Oh, God, I'm running. Yeah. I think I just like the idea of you collapsing in a public square like Nietzsche and the horse. (laughs) And you're just muttering, he wouldn't stop running with the devil. He wouldn't stop running with the devil. And with that, Jordan was committed. They set a 5150 old. <laughs> we just fade the David Lee Raw thing into Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings. <laughs> Let me see if I can do that live with a little, uh, a little live, uh, little live mashup action. Let me, let me just pull. You know, I'm a bit of a fancy myself, a bit of a sound artist. Don't know if you knew that about me, Jordan, but uh, see what I can, see what work, see what magic I can produce. Um. I'm only going to tell you one time. Yes, I am. Woo! I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> Sound like it was in key. <laughs> it really is amazing how I'm watching you break down in real time, and your genial facade has yet to crack. <laughs> it's here. I can see the the blood vessel occluding in your brain. They're just fading slowly. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. I'm Alex Heigl. Yes, I am! <laughs> and I was Jordan Runtog. Yes, I am! <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. 
The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R.